0: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you would like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. You will go and grab your Bibles or turn them on and go to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, continuing our series through what we've come to know as the Sermon on the Mount, but Jesus calls it the good news of the kingdom. I think even that shift in title helps us to reframe some of it. Uh, so on the screen now will be some scripture I'm going to use throughout this morning, uh, just ways for you to see that. I'm not making it up. It's all throughout this book. And what I love about this book, is that it's a collection of books. It's a collection of scrolls that all fit together somehow in God's divine providence. They all fit together to tell one unified story. And I love that. So I want you to see that as often as we can on Sundays, how they all fit uh, together. i to be honest with you. This message is not a fun one at all. Uh, it's not fun. It was not fun to prepare. It's not fun to study for. And it will not be fun to hear. Uh, so I just I want you to know that now. So whatever boots you need to put on, feel free to put them on. But I wanna invite us into something that I believe is actually really good news if we can get there. I think if we get this right, I think it makes the good news even gooder if we get it right. I think if we get this right, I think we're gonna find some real hope here. Not, not fantasy hope, but real grimy kind of hope here in what we're gonna read this morning. So again, we're gonna read just one verse. I wanna put it all in context for us because that is important. Matthew chapter 5 Continuing with the Beatitudes, Latin for blessing, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God, we need your help today to study your word. It's yours. You've written it, you've delivered it to men and women who wrote it for us. So, God, we need your help to interpret, to understand. So, whatever is in the way for us of hearing you today, God, I pray that you would remove it even now. And if we need to remove it, God, give us courage to move it, to remove it. Whether we put it away or change seats, whatever you need us to do today that we might hear you. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see this morning, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this comes out of the Sermon on the Mount. And just like every other verse of Scripture, you cannot read just the verse you'll mess it up every single time, to take it out of context. So this verse, Matthew 5, 4, fits into the context of what's called the Sermon on the Mount or the Good News of the Kingdom, but that fits into the um, the context of the book of Matthew and the whole New Testament and the whole Bible. It wasn't until a few hundred years ago that we had chapters and verses in our Bible. And some of that's good for us, uh, but also sometimes it creates barriers where there don't need to be barriers. So I want to put all this in context for us so we understand what's actually happening here. So, Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, but chapter 5 begins with verse 1. That was free. You can have that. Uh, It begins with verse 1. That's extra. It's all yours. You can take it home. That's what you learned this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Matthew says, Seeing the crowds, this Jesus, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So now we've got a few questions that we have to have answered. Who were the disciples? Well, immediately, if you've grown up in church, you picture 12 disciples. The issue is chronologically at this point, there aren't 12, uh, maybe four, depending on on the gospel writer. But what's even bigger here is that gospel or disciple means apprentice. It's someone who's learning, a learner, a a follower. So it's bigger than just these four fishermen. It's bigger than that. And what we learn is it's a crowd of disciples, seeing the crowds. So now we've got to ask, well, who's in the crowds? We covered this last week. I want to set the stage again for us this morning. And here's why. What we covered last week is foundational to understanding the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, and in particular, these Beatitudes. If we don't get last week right, we might as well close the doors and move on. So we have to come back here. So, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus um, has been baptized, he's been tested in the wilderness, his relative John the Baptist, the baptizer, has been arrested, and it's now that Jesus begins to preach. And here's his message it's the same message over and over and over again. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent meaning to change your mind in such a way that it changes your behavior. But he says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So here's the assertion Jesus is making You've been living in one kingdom. He tells the people, You've been living in the kingdom of the world, but now there's a new kingdom on the scene. And now you've got to decide what you're going to do with it. That's why he says, Repent. What are you going to do with this new kingdom? There's the kingdom of the world that has all of its rules and edicts and has its own king. But a new king is on the scene, establishing a new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. And so now the invitation is into this new kingdom. So repent. What are you going to do? Are you going to turn from the kingdom of the world and chase the kingdom of heaven? How will you handle it? This is the message he's been given. So now he has established himself as the king. He's building a kingdom. And to have a kingdom, you need people. And so Jesus recruits people. The first people he recruits are four fishermen, uh, Jewish fishermen, which means they flunked out of Jewish school. They didn't make it. They're not good enough. Like they didn't make the JV Jewish team. They're just, they're terrible. And so they're out, which means they're back to their father's trade of fishing. Jesus comes up on the shore and says, hey, follow me, which is the words they would want to hear from a rabbi. And they follow Jesus. So when he goes, Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, King of the world, Son of God, when he wants to build a kingdom, he doesn't go where everyone thought he would go. He doesn't get the rich and the powerful and the influential. He goes to those men that no one actually cares what they think about anything. But I'm sure they'll post about it on social media anyway. But anyway, so this, they don't care. No one cares, no influence whatsoever. And then from there, he begins to build an even bigger kingdom, gathering more and more people. In verse 23 of Matthew 4, says that he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Galilee is not a religious region. It's gotten really watered down and messy in Galilee, but that's where he goes and he gathers people. And he's healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. Now it expands. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. So now he's bringing all these people, but again, it's not the cream of the crop, not the best of the best, not the Jewish Ivy League. He's just gone to the slums, to the outskirts of society, and he's drawing all these people in, performing miracles and signs and wonders, and they're drawn into this man and what he's doing. And then verse 25, great crowds followed him. From Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond, the Jordan. So when we ask the question in Matthew 5, 1, who are the crowds? This is the crowd. It's not church folk. It's not good Baptist people who are going to leave from here and get to the restaurant before the Methodists get there. That's not what's happening. These are nasty, stinky, grimy people. The kind of people that when they walked in here, you would want to know where the security team is. That's, that's what you're wondering. And they've all gathered to follow Jesus. So this is who's in the crowd. They're poverty stricken. They've been living in slums. They're the outcasts, of the hopeless, they're the, the desperate. And now Jesus gathers this crowd, this group of people, and he's going to declare the most important sermon of his life. And so he's thought through how he wants to begin, and he begins with blessings to the unimportant, to the insignificant, the hurting, and the outcast. How does he begin his, the good news of his kingdom? With blessing? So Matthew 5, verse 2, Jesus opened his mouth, which is a very Jewish way of saying this is an important saying. What he's saying is important. And he taught them by saying, and here are the first words out of his mouth for the sermon, blessed. The Greek word is makarios. Congratulations. Overwhelmingly happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, this one, if we miss this one, we miss them all. These beatitudes are not meant to be taken one at a time. They're meant to be building on one another. So poor in spirit is the foundation of all of it. The idea is spiritually bankrupt. You've got nothing to offer. Who are those who are poor in spirit? The ones who finally recognize. This is the beatitude of recognition. Recognizing that you've got nothing to offer. Nothing to offer the King of Kings. Nothing to offer. So in the very same way that you parents around Christmas time. Uh, your children buy you Christmas gifts with the money you gave them to buy gifts for you. And you have this wrestle in your mind of how much of my money did you just spend on that thing that you think I want? How much of my money was spent on that? But the recognition is we're like those kids. Anything we have to offer Jesus, He gave us the money for. He's given it to us first that we might give it back to Him. So, what it means to be poor in spirit is to recognize I'm bankrupt, I've got nothing, I've got nothing to offer. But in that moment now, you've got to decide what you're going to do with that feeling. What do you do with feeling poor in spirit? This is where Jesus continues to build an image. He's building almost a stained glass image of of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be in the kingdom. So it begins with poverty of spirit. And then he says in verse four, Then blessed are those who mourn. We've got to decide what to do with our bankruptness, with our poverty of spirit. And what Jesus is saying is the proper response is to mourn over it. Now, again, pulled out of context, this word mourn can carry all sorts of connotation. It can mean blessed are those who've lost a loved one. And I would say, yes, absolutely. Blessed are those who have had to put their dog down. Yes, absolutely. Blessed are those who left their wallet at a basketball game. Yes, Mourn that, absolutely mourn that. But the context is key. We can't pull it out. Are those things true? Yes. But what is Jesus saying? What Jesus is saying is when you recognize the poverty of your spirit, the next thing is mourning, that you mourn your depravity, you mourn your bankruptness. So let me quickly define mourning for us. Mourning we're going to define as hope plus disappointment. That's what mourning is. It's when hope meets Disappointment. You can't mourn something you never hoped for. So growing up, um, I was just a short, skinny kid, like just short and skinny. So I was one of the shortest ones in my class, Um, had had a hard time finding clothes that fit. And that's just who I was. So in all honesty, I never dreamed of being in the NBA. Like that was never a hope for me. I was pretty aware early on that wasn't where my career was going to be. Uh, not to mention my basketball skills. But to begin with that, it was like, I'm not, I'm not going to make it. So I've never had to mourn not playing in the NBA and being an all-star. I've never had to mourn that. Not at all. Not even had a glimpse of it. I also was never given musical ability. Never. I tr- man, I tried. Because every good Christian boy played guitar. And when I was growing up in youth group, that's what you did. Like, it's how you made youth pastor happy and it's how you got the girls. And so I wanted to learn... I'm terrible. Like I can't make my hands do different things at the same time. Can't do it. I don't know how to do it. God bless all of you that can. But I learned pretty early on, I'm not gonna be a musician. So I never had to mourn the fact that I'm not a Grammy artist. I'm not. I don't have to mourn that. I'm not sad about that. I'm just not sad. I'm, I'm not at all over that. Like I'm not, I'm not the guy that goes on to the first round of American Idol and needs some stranger to tell me I can't sing. I know it. I know I can't. You don't need to tell me. I got it. I got it. So because I never hoped in those things, I don't mourn them not happening. There was no disappointment for me. On the flip side, when it wasn't basketball for me. It was baseball. I mean, I played all the sports, but I loved baseball. And it was the one that I was the best at. And I wasn't great at it, but I was the best at that one. But I, as a kid, dreamed of being in the major leagues. I dreamed of that. Again, pretty early on, realized that's not going to happen for me. But then it shifted to this dream of, yeah, yeah. But when I have kids... My boys are going to love baseball. And I've seen Field of Dreams enough times to know that if I come out of the, the cornfield and I say, you want to have a catch to my kid, he's going to cry and we're going to play catch. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to build a baseball field in the backyard. I got all these dreams. And then I have boys who could care less about baseball. They don't care about baseball at all. It's the most boring thing in the world to them, which I get. Um, I think it's very cynical, but I understand where they're coming from. Right, so, but I did, like, I had to mourn, not grievously, but I had to mourn the fact that my boys aren't coming, hey, Dad, you wanna have a catch? And I, I never, never had to do that. Now, my oldest is playing the cross, so I'm learning how to play catch with a, a long stick with a net on the end of it, so that's fine, like, I'll, I'll make some compromise there. Right, but I, I did have to mourn. I had hopes that became a bit disappointing for me. Many of you had hopes for your marriage. No one stands at the altar on their wedding day And doesn't have hopes for the future of that marriage. Right? You have hopes of what it would be like because you've seen all the Disney movies and the Hallmark Christmas movies. You've got a dream. You got hopes of what that will look like. And if you're honest, you've been disappointed. Yes? You've been disappointed. Because, women, that man that you married back then, he's gotten a bit bigger, has he not? He's gotten a bit bigger. Things have changed for him. And sweetheart, you, you weren't what you were then either, so let's just be honest, you weren't that. But the gift was I had dreams of what my marriage would be like, just physically, emotionally, even spiritually. And if you've been married more than 18 months, you understand how disappointing it is now. (laughs) And you have to mourn. You have to mourn that what I thought this was going to be is not what it actually turned out to be. And you've got a moment in your mourning of how you're going to handle it. Same thing happened with your kids. You had dreams about what your kids would be like, and because you had hopes, met with disappointment, there's mourning that has to happen. Spiritually, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that we have eternity written in our hearts. So we have a hope. We have a hope of what will quench that. We have a hope of life. And then when you live life, that hope is squashed by disappointment. And what Jesus is trying to tell us here is that this, this disappointment has to do with no one else but you. This is where it's going to get tricky for us. What does it mean here to mourn? There's a number of different words in the Greek language for mourning, New Testament written primarily in Greek, nine of them actually, which tells you all you need to know about Greek people. But he says there's nine of them, and this word that Jesus uses is the most expressive form of mourning. So I don't want you to think of um, a tear that's shed or a Sarah McLaughlin commercial. I don't want that. What I want you to think of is when a mama loses her baby and is wailing uncontrollably. That—that's the mourning. Blessed are those who mourn like that. Blessed are those who, in the deepest guts of their being, are mourning. The theologian William Bar- Barclay defines it this way: he says this is the kind of grief which takes such hold of a man that it cannot be hid. It's the only sorrow which brings an ache to the heart. It's not only. It is the sorrow which brings an ache to the heart and unrestrainable tears to the eyes. It's that kind of mourning. It's the mourning that's not just intellectual, but it is emotional. Like it pulls at our hearts. It's that kind of mourning where you can't get out of bed. It's the kind of mourning when it's all that you think about. Nothing will ever be the same again. That kind of mourning. Blessed are those who grieve, who mourn in such a way that brings an ache to the heart and unrestrainable tears to the eyes. Now, at this time, all religious leaders um, had become known as people who were not emotional. In fact, it was almost a virtue to not be emotional. And so you've got religious leaders who are appealing to intellect, to knowledge, and they're appealing to behavior and never appealing to the heart. And many of you grew up in churches just like that, that appealed to your intellect and they appealed to your behavior, but they never once taught about your heart. Well, What's tough about that is that when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandment, he says to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, the seat of emotion. So biblically, yes, uh, should we be careful not let our hearts lead us? Absolutely, but we can't take that so far and say then you should never have emotion. No, 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 you should have emotion, particularly this kind of emotion, this tear-inducing sort of emotion. Religion had become about knowledge and behavior, not about feeling. So then what happens is there's some of us who say, yeah, yeah, I'm just not an emotional person. Okay, let me watch some football with you next Saturday in the fall, next fall on the Saturday. Are you emotional? Yeah, Uh uh-huh. You're saying words you would never say if you're not emotional. You're saying them, you're emotional about a 19-year-old boy who just ruined your week. Don't tell me you're not emotional. You're emotional. You say you're not emotional, let's go drive on 75 together. (laughs) Shoot, let's just even try to get to 75 together. Let's do that first. We don't even need to make it there. And I know you've got emotion. So it's not that. And so, man, I wanna challenge you here because stereotypically, it's been told that men don't have emotions. Wives would all disagree. Yes, yes, they do. They're just not the ones you want them to have. But we, we all have emotion. So I want to challenge you in this. You've grown up in such a way that it's been told to you uh, that it's not masculine to cry. I would beg to differ. Because Jesus, the most masculine person on the planet, wept continuously. So yeah, it's okay to cry. Women, I'm going to tell you this. You've been told for so long that it's wrong to be emotional. I can't believe how emotional you are. Then you've been told, hey, just settle down, relax. And that brings up all sorts of other emotions for you. But I want to encourage you in a couple of ways. One is this, be who you are. You're emotional. You're an emotional being. God's wired you in your mother's womb to be that way. Be emotional. But on the flip side, do not use that emotion to manipulate. So here's the call. Blessed are those who emotionally grieve. For they shall be comforted. Prophet Ezekiel was declaring a a kind of a new gospel to come, a new law that were to come. In Ezekiel 36, 26, this is God speaking through Ezekiel. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And for some of you, that's what you need right now today. For God to remove your heart of stone, it's become calloused and hardened by trauma and pain, and the good news of the kingdom is that I'm gonna take that away from you. I'm gonna give you a heart of flesh. You're like, how is that good news? I like having a stone heart. I like this. No, 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 no. But you're missing on feeling everything. So that's the good news. And again, all the context matters here. So let me tell you what this is straight up. This is mourning over your sin. That's what this is. This is what this is. Blessed are those Who mourn, who grieve over their sin. I think it goes further into even this impact of sin in the world, absolutely. But it begins here with us. The poor in spirit should be mourning over what Paul calls depravity, over the brokenness of our hearts and our souls. In Romans chapter 7, Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote two thirds of the New Testament, Uh, as far as righteousness goes, the most righteous man. And he says, even at this stage in my life, as a missionary and a church planter, I can't figure out sin. He says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I do want to do. Anybody relate to that? And he continues, and he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, that's an emotional statement. I'm wretched. I'm depraved. Who will deliver me? This isn't some guy on the, in the slums or outcasts. This is a guy that many uh, traditions call a saint. And he's saying, yeah, I'm a wretched man. I can't get over, I can't figure out my sin. So here's the question I need us to wrestle with for this morning. When was the last time you grieved over your own sin? Take it a step further. When was the last time you wept over your sin? not the sin of someone else, and what that caused for you, you. When was the last time you personally came face to face with your sin and you allowed yourself to take the staircase deeper into grief and you wept over it? I would imagine for most of our room, of the room here today, you've never actually wept over your sin. We've gotten really good at avoiding mourning. I'll talk more about that here in a bit. The question we have to wrestle with is, when was the last time you wept over your sin? I'm not saying you wept over getting caught or the anxiety of getting caught. And I think it's okay to weep over the consequences of your sin too. I think that's okay. Sin carries consequences. When was the last time you even wept over what your sin cost you, cost your marriage, cost your family, cost your business? When was the last time you wept over it? Well, you would say, I'm not supposed to weep. Man, I'm a Christian. I got joy. And I got it deep, deep down in my heart. So I'm not gonna mourn. I'm not gonna grieve. Theologian A.W. Pink says, the Christian himself has much to mourn over. The sins which he now commits, both of omission or uh, omitting, forgetting to do something, and commission, committing a sin, are a sense of daily grief to him, or should be and will be. If his conscience is kept tender, an ever-deepening discovery of of the depravity of his nature, the plague of his heart, the sea of corruption within, ever-polluting all that he does, deeply exercises or exhausts him. Consciousness of the surgings of unbelief, the swellings of pride, the coldness of his love, and the scarcity of fruit make him cry, O wretched man that I am. It's not like we don't have reason to mourn over our sin. One of my favorite conversations I've had recently, it's a conversation with a friend of mine who's about 10 years older than me and with tears in his eyes, grieved over his sin. He's grieved over some sort of sin. And he tells me the sin and I'm like, man, I wish that was my sin, that'd be awesome. But in increasing maturity, it's like there's more tenderness to our sin, This is what Pink is saying. We've got reason. We've got reason to mourn over our sin. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he says he's face to face with God in a vision. And his declaration is, woe is me, for I am lost. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. He's a prophet, like one of the most influential prophets in the Old Testament. And he stands before God and he says, woe is me. Doesn't give a list of accolades and things he said. Doesn't try to prove his worthiness. He is overcome with mourning. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king. Sure, compared to my neighbor, I have no reason to mourn. But compared to the king, I've seen the king, the Lord of hosts. So from our poverty of spirit comes mourning. So Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. When was the last time you mourned your sin? You mourned your brokenness. You mourned your compulsions. You mourned the fact that it's been months or years since you've seen any fruit in your life. Blessed are those who mourn. And all these blessings then come with a cause, a reason. So blessed are those who mourn. Why? Why are they blessed? Because they will be comforted. And I'll be honest with you, that feels like a terrible blessing. That just feels like a consolation prize. It feels like the coach's award. That's what it feels like to me. Like, yeah, you tried hard, so here's this. And I go to the cynical side of me. It's like, well, I would never need to be comforted if I never mourned. So I'll just not mourn so I don't need comfort. Because needing comfort feels weak, doesn't it? It just feels like I need something that I don't have. It just feels very weak to me. So some work, again, has to be done here in our, in our language. So again, it's in the Greek language. This word comforted in the Greek is perakaleo. So it's, it combines these two ideas. Para meaning alongside of and kaleo meaning to call. So technically the dictionary definition of parakaleo means to call alongside. But the Greek language, a lot of the English language, um, has dictionary definitions. Then it has what it actually means. You know what I mean? You have some of those in your life. The dictionary says this. We're going to use it in this way. Michael Jackson changed the whole, what bad means completely in the 80s. So that's kind of what's happening here. So let me just give you a few words in English. And I want you to think through kind of a mental picture of this. This is how we associate words. The word is teetering. I you think of the word teetering. The dictionary definition uh, is unsteady, unstable, going back and forth. When, in regards to decision making, unable to make a decision. That's what teetering is. So let's have some audience participation. When I say teetering, what images come to your mind? Shout them out. Seesaw, good. What else? Seesaw, teeter, weeble wobble, teeter-totter. Let's just say the same thing. That's fine. I'll tell you what comes to my mind. This just tells you the area in which I grew up. My, what comes to my mind is a car on the edge of a cliff where the driver gets out of the driver's seat and moves to the back because he wants to balance the car out. And then that happens because those were the shows that I watched. And I thought that if I'm ever on the edge of a cliff, I'll just go to the back seat and that'll be fine for me. But the image is of this teetering. It feels precarious. It feels dangerous, right? Let me give you another word. The word is mothering with an M, mothering. The verb form of mother, to mother, mothering. What it means is to act like a mother. That's what it means. So again, images. What images come to your mind when you hear the word mothering? What do you think of? Mom, do-gooder. What else? Protection. Structure. Any, anybody think of smothering? Did that come to your mind at all? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Helicopter. Helicopter. There it is. So we've got, we've got three kids. Uh, the youngest one is a, do- is a girl. She's our daughter, uh, Landry. And the boy's number one complaint is she keeps mothering me. That's their complaint. It doesn't mean, oh, she's so nurturing. What it means is get her out of my business. I don't like this. I don't like this. What's happening? So the word means something, then we have definition. Let me give you another one. The word is slimy, slimy. What comes to your mind when you hear the word slimy? Politician. Politician. No names, no names. That's fine. We can do that. No names. Politician. What else? Nickelodeon. Nickelodeon. Good. Anybody else? Car salesman. No offense if you sell cars. Part of your job. What else? Pardon me? Algae, good. Snakes. Snakes. In the chapel service, Jeff said mucus. That's what Jeff said. Jeff said mucus over there. Whole different demographic, so it might be more appealing and appropriate. <laughs> Alright, so listen. Definition of slimy, obviously, is full of slime, but then you've got these ideas. Now, now again, if I say think of the word slimy in regards to a person, what comes to your mind? No names, no pointing. What comes to your mind? We've heard car salesman, we've heard politician. Anybody else? TV preacher, TV preacher. there it is. you <laughs> like that. I've got a handkerchief to sell you. Anybody else? <laughs> Lawyers. Golly, if you're a lawyer, I want you to know we don't feel that way about you. <laughs> but there are some. All right, so do you see, see what happens? You hear a word, but the word gives you a mental image, an idea. All right? So the Greek language is a lot like that. This word perikaleo is one of the most ancient Greek words. And so with that comes a history of understandings about it. So there's five main ideas of what it means. I'm going to walk through some of them. I'm going to give you one that I think, for me, actually makes this good news. So the first is to call forth comfort. The picture is the idea of a child screaming in the middle of the night. Perikaleo, calling out for someone to come alongside of them call out for comfort. Secondly is to call a physician, to call out for someone with expertise to come alongside of them, to heal a wound uh, or to set a broken bone. Another way it's used is military. It's to stabilize the troop. A perikaleo is to call someone. You're in distress and you call out to someone to come and remind you of the mission and to help you, encourage you to move forward. Another one is to plead one's case. It's the idea of a counselor. Uh, uh, in loss to come alongside of you and to plead your case before a judge. This one, though, I think is phenomenal. It means the picture is to rekindle a flame. It's the picture of someone gently and patiently blowing on dying embers to bring a fire to life again. Perikaleo, to rekindle a flame. It's fascinating. is that whenever the f- word for Holy Spirit a m- number of times in the scriptures is used, it's the noun form of this word, the paraclete. That's why we call him the comforter. The word for spirit is the same word for breath or air as well. So what does the Holy Spirit do in its comforting? his comforting? Well, he brings a fresh wind of the spirit to bring what was dead back to life. And that, that sounds like good news to me. That sounds like good news. That sounds like if I am mourning my sin in such a way that I feel hopeless and I feel like the flame has been extinguished. If I'm mourning my addiction, mourning my, uh, the poverty of my spirit, if I'm mourning all of that in such a way that I feel dead, I feel like there's nothing to offer, and then comfort is that the Holy Spirit comes and breathes life back into me again, well, that's good news. That's good news. That's resurrection kind of news. That's gospel news. That was, what was once dead can be brought back to life. So think about this now. Think about the morning of your sin. And those of you who have gone there, you've gone to the depths of your depravity, like you've come face to face with the evil that lies within you. And you didn't fight it. You came out acknowledging it. And then there was a moment where in your mourning, in your grief, you felt it. You felt the fresh wind of the Spirit ignite. It. Anybody feel that before? Like you're just deep in it. And then this moment comes where you don't know where it comes from. For David, he's mourning this, his sin of adultery and murder. And the consequence was a son who would be killed. And while the son is sick, he's begging and he's pleading and he's fasting and the son passes away and David stands up, takes a shower and the servant's like, what are you doing? He's like, I got this life now. This is what it means. This is what it means. When you mourn, you're given life back again. Your life is breathed back into you. But to get to new life, we have to deal with our humanity. We have to deal with our brokenness. And not just intellectually, I think we have to feel it in such a way that we weep like uncontrollably. For many of us, we hate mourning. We run from it, don't we? We run from grief. For some of us, we're so melancholy, we're just used to it. So we don't need a way out. This is just who we are. Last night, um, we had some nieces over, and uh, Colton was at uh, Winter Jam, and so it's Meredith and the girls, and then me and Cason, and I'm finishing up some notes, and Casey and I have a fire going, and um, the fire goes out. I keep asking him, has the fire gone out? And he says it has, and so I, I notice it's, I mean, it's just embers down there. And so we put some more wood on, thinking if it gets hot enough, the heat might come up, and then, then I remember, um, I'm studying this, let me just try Right? So, I've done it before, and so I'm gonna try. I'm gonna just show how awesome I am to my nine year old. So, I was like, oh, the fire's up. I'm like, oh, listen, buddy, dad's got it. And so, I go up there, and I begin blowing, and nothing's happening. And then, it's just, you need like a steady, cold breath of air, like to create that chamber and the oxygen and all that happening. And I do, and it ignites. And at that point, I'm basically one of the Avengers at that point. <laughs> so, I'm the hero, and we're having conversations, and, um, What came to my mind is this, is that I think far too often we don't allow ourselves to get to the morning. And what happens is that smoldering ash, the embers, we think we'll just put more wood on the fire and that will start it. So I think if we can catch it early enough, we'll just throw some wood on the fire. So I'm going to walk through five things that I think we do to put logs on the fire that will do nothing until the fresh wind of the Spirit comes in to breathe life into it again. There's ways that we uh, avoid mourning. I think instead of mourning our sin, we mitigate the effects of our sin. It means to lessen them. So I think what many of us do, because we don't want to face it, is that we hide our sin, and we hide it from other people. And then over a long enough timeline, we actually deceive ourselves about that sin too. I don't do that. I don't struggle with that. We mitigate our sin. We hide it. Or on the flip side, I think to mitigate sin... We confess just enough to make people think that we've confessed something to get them off of our back. We confess to God just enough so that we think he's pleased and get them off of our back. We mitigate our sin. That's a log that we put on thinking it's gonna light. The second thing I think we do is we mask our sin. I think we cover it. I think we cover it ultimately with self-righteousness. I'm gonna tip the scales back in my favor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got this sin, I've got this this thing uh, that's rebellion against God, but I think if I do enough good things, it'll counteract that. And for some of us, it's just puffing up this pride, this egocentric way that we live our lives, that if we lean into this, we don't have to feel the effects of our sin anymore. So we mask it. Many of us, we mask our sin with humor. So we joke about it. It's flippant. We think it's funny. I think a lot of us, instead of mourning our sin, we medicate it. We do anything we can to not have to feel it anymore. Because you know the feeling. The moment you commit that sin, you know the feeling. You know, you know what it feels like. like. You know that you know that you know you should not have done that. And so we try to preserve ourselves with medication, anything to numb it. So it's alcohol, it's bourbon, it's drugs. For many of us, it's just scrolling on our phones to not feel anything. I just need to not feel anything. Give me Instagram, give me TikTok, give me Facebook. I just, I just need to not right now. I think, though, the two biggest things is one, that we try to manage our sin. We think we can handle it. Oh, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. I know, I know what my problem is. I'll put this thing on my computer. I'll get rid of this thing, I'll handle it. I can manage my own sin. We white knuckle it. We just try to work harder and harder. We push it down. We think we can train our sin like it's some domesticated animal when it's a wild lion ready to seek to still kill, steal, kill and, and devour you. That's what it's trying to do. No, 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 I got it. Let me manage it. It's been 20 years for some of you. How's that going? To it for you? But ultimately, I think we try to minimize our sin. We stop calling it sin and we call it mistakes. It's just a season it's this struggle I'm having. I think the primary way we minimize our sin is that we compare it to the sins of other people. I mean, listen, I might gossip, but I've never killed anyone. I mean, I might look at pornography, but I've never slept with another man's wife. Then I think we blame. We minimize our sin by blaming it on other people. Well, it's not my fault. My ex-wife, she made me like this. She did this to me. My kids did this to me. My boss, the government. And then we excuse it away. See, it's not that big of a deal. I'll fix it. F.F. Bruce, the theologian, says, there can be no comfort where there is no grief. There can be no comfort where there is no grief. Where there is no mourning, there's no shot of comfort. So here's what's happened for many of us. Because we refuse to mourn our depravity, to mourn our sin, you are frustrated with God right now. You're furious with Him because He hasn't come through for you, because He took away things from you, because He's letting you live this life that you're living right now. You're mad at Him, you're frustrated. For some of you, you just stop feeling anything at all. So, what you do every Sunday, you just come and you sit down and you show up and you open your Bibles like good little Christian boys and girls and you pretend to take notes and maybe you do take notes and you do all the things and yet there's nothing emotional about your relationship with Jesus. You've lost it. There's some of you who have dreams and desires about ministry opportunities. A lot of them. And so you keep trying to put wood on the fire to cover up your sin, to manage your sin, to mitigate your sin, and it seems like nothing is coming forward for you. Here is why you have to mourn before you can be comforted. And you've got no shot at a future until you go into the depths of the darkness. Continually. There can be no comfort where there is no grief. I've been in ministry for a number of years, and for a lot of my years in ministry, I was frustrated by it. I mean, I liked it. I liked the job. I liked what I was doing, but over and over again, I just felt like I kept hitting a ceiling. No one saw in me what I thought I had to offer. All these, all these kinds of things. Like it's always an uphill battle, and in the meanwhile, I'm trying to manage sin. I'm trying to mitigate my sin. I'm trying to control it. I don't want to be seen as as less than. So I'm I'm controlling, I'm masking, I'm covering, I'm doing all of it for years and years and years. Most of my life, it's how I've handled my sin. And then God pulled the rug out from under me in the most gracious act ever in my life. And I come face to face with my darkness. And I know where to run, nothing to manage, nothing to hide. It's just me and who I actually am. And what do I do? I pericaleo. I call out to God. I need you. Don't leave me. I know I've screwed it all up. I know I've messed up everything. Don't leave me. In the process of trying to, I'm drawn to Psalm 103. Your steadfast love never changes. And I come back to it and there was a moment, I couldn't tell you when, but there was a moment when I felt the comfort. I felt the fresh wind of the Spirit and it changed everything for me. And what I thought I wanted was no longer what I wanted. What I want now is Jesus. That's what I want. And the Spirit breathes gently and patiently into the dying embers of my life and the wood I had placed on top of it meant nothing until that happened and the flame lit in the dark embers of my soul. And I want you to know you can have it too. That's what I think is happening here. You've got dreams. You've got ministry ideas. You want to be used by God. You want to be a good husband or a good wife. You you want your family to come to know Jesus. Quit heaping logs on dying embers. Start mourning your sin that he might breathe fresh life back into it again. I hate to think that some of you would go another 50 years heaping seasoned wood on top of a dead fire I want to grow more and more frustrated and more and more hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. I'm praying for 20 seconds of courage for you to look into the depths of your soul and to realize, no, this is actually who I am. And the steadfast love of God never changes. That's good news. It's good news that what was once dead can be brought back to life. That's what we believe, church. is what we believe. We believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and he didn't stay dead. He came back to life from a fresh wind of the power of the Spirit. That's what we believe. If you believe it about a man, you can believe it about your marriage. You can believe it about your own soul. You can believe it about your kids. You can believe it. But we have to get here first. There's no comfort until there is grief. In that passage in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has division, he sees the Lord. And he says in Isaiah 6, verse 5, Woe is me, I am lost. I'm undone, some translations say. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And look what happens after that. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. You know what that is? That's a smoldering ember. That's what this is that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth. And he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. That's the gospel. And your sin is atoned for. And then it gets better than that. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And with this new fresh wind, Isaiah says, here I am, you can send me. I don't know where you find yourself today if you feel hopeless and wrung out, you might be on the precipice of what God has for you today. But if you're here today thinking you've got nothing to grieve over, you've got your sin under control, you're not a sinner, you're not that bad of a sinner, the sad truth for you in the Beatitudes and throughout the gospel is that you will continue to be exactly how you are right now. Nothing will change for you. If you're here today grieving your sin, this is good news of perikaleo, a fresh wind to ignite the fire again. What that means for some of us in the room today, you got to quit blaming your junk on somebody else. Your wife is not the problem, you are. Your kids are not the problem, you are. Your boss is not the problem, you are. The church is not the problem, the culture isn't the problem, politics isn't the problem, it's in us. And if you were truly poor in spirit, you would know it. You'd be willing to admit it. And then grieve over it because you had hopes for something else. But here's the good news the hope of Jesus is that what was once dead can be brought back to life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm just going to ask that question again When was the last time you wept over your sin? Not wept because of your circumstances based on someone else's sin, but your own sin. When, did, when was that for you? That you were so grieved by your own darkness. And if it was when you were six years old, I just don't know that we're where we need to be today. Hands went up when I asked, how many of you have been to that place where you feel the fresh wind of the Spirit, the breath of life? The hands went up. But the truth is, right now, some of you, you're asking for that without the grief. You can't get there. It's just a log you're throwing on dying embers. So here's the invitation. Recognize that you are poor in spirit. That's good news. Because when you're there, and it leads you to mourning, You can pericaleo. You can call out. The spirit comes rushing in. It may not be today or tomorrow or next week, but over time, there will be a, what you thought was smoldering. It's now a bonfire. And it changes everything. It changes the way you love your spouse or the way you love your singleness, it changes the way you love your kids or love that you don't have kids changes the way you love your church, changes the way you love the word. That's what you need. Not logs. need oxygen. It's only found in mourning. Father, we love you. You are a gift in more ways than I think we have time to even acknowledge today, but you are. So God, if there's anyone here today who is teetering on the edge of mourning and is looking for logs instead of the breath of heaven, God, I pray you would drive them towards the Spirit. It's painful and it's hard, but it's life-giving. There's some of us here today who are coming face-to-face with our own brokenness and sinfulness, and we're mourning it. God, push us deeper into it. and Send the fresh wind, breathe life into our dry bones again. May we be a church of people who recognize that we are bankrupt in what we have to offer. We would mourn it and find a bonfire of passion for you that draws the world in such a way that crowds are following, that we'd give them the good news of the kingdom. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.